Hello and welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bloomberg. Today, we're speaking with American Psychiatric Association member, Dr. Neil Kay, about the realities of mental illness and gun ownership, breaking the stigma of mental health, ongoing trends in the psychiatric and healthcare industries, and the impact of mentors on your career. Dr. Kay is a clinical and forensic psychiatrist with more than 35 years of experience treating patients. He is an IMS elite expert, neuropsychiatrist, and pharmacologist, board certified in general adult psychiatry, geriatric psychiatry, and forensic psychiatry. You mentioned Buffalo, and unfortunately, those sorts of situations are happening monthly, weekly. It's, it's, uh, it's devastating. With elections and lawmakers at the forefront right now, a light has definitely been shined on mental illness and the Second Amendment. Could seeking therapy eliminate someone's right to bear arms and in what instances? So the answer to that is generally no. So there are a couple of exceptions. So the important rule to remember first is that as if someone is involuntarily psychiatrically hospitalized, what we call involuntary commitment, there is a federal mandate that that person is reported to what's called the National uh, uh, Instant Crime Reporting Database, the NICS database, and they will have their weapons uh, taken from them. There is a restoration process through the courts for someone to get those weapons back. But that is in the rare cases where someone is involuntarily hospitalized. If someone is voluntarily hospitalized, nothing happens. There's no uh, duty to report, to take, to do anything about that. Uh, And certainly in the outpatient arena, there is no uh, requirement either. There are two other things people might wanna know about. Some states, in fact, probably most states at this point, have a duty for clinicians to take action to protect someone if a person with mental illness and as a direct result of that mental illness makes a clear threat to a specifically identified individual of harm to them and the clinician believes that they could carry that out, then we would have a duty to either warn or protect depending on which state you're in. That doesn't mean that your guns are taken, although they might be, and that would be temporary in those circumstances. The probably the growth area in this concept is not really a psychiatric issue, but these are the states that have what are called red flag laws where as a result of someone's behavior, law enforcement uh, may seek a court order to remove someone's weapons. Again, it's temporary. What's important for people to understand, and the red flag laws are good, I like them, is that they are triggered by behavior, not by mental illness. The reality is that most people with mental illness are not dangerous. uh, And they're not the problem. While people like to talk about 
people who are mentally ill being dangerous and shooting the place up. That's rarely the case. Most of the mass shootings and, and problems are done by people who are not mentally ill. As I like to say, they're bad, not mad. Uh, and so uh, what I really think makes sense for legislators, governments, even the NRA to focus on is behavior, not mental illness, because it's the behavior that's the problem. And frequently the behavior is coming from either anger, uh, feelings of deprivation, uh, substance abuse, but it's not because they have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Those people are rarely violent. In fact, more often than not, they're likely to become victims than perpetrators. Currently, there's a, a large focus on mental health throughout the country. We see it in schools. Uh, we see it in corporations. With more people becoming comfortable with saying, I'm going to speak to my therapist about this or that, how do you think today's acceptance and awareness of mental health and I guess the, the school of psychology differ from when you first began in your career to today? So we're talking really about what we call stigma. And we've made a lot of headway, but we have a lot further to go. So uh, the stigma is definitely breaking down and uh, the generation or two behind me are far more comfortable with, with being open about that. You talked about social media, uh, seeing people post on social media about uh, getting therapy, taking medications, having a psychiatrist or psychologist is much more common and much more acceptable. Uh, and that's actually a good thing. Uh, access to mental health is clearly better, but not what it needs to be. We have a shortage of mental health cl clinicians at every level from you know, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, psychiatric nurse practitioners, uh, peer therapists across the board. We need more, but we really have done a lot to break down the stigma. However, still at the same time, we do have stigma around things like uh, you know, well, if uh, somebody shot up a store, they must be crazy. Well, actually, they're probably not crazy. The more victims, the less likely it is that they are crazy, actually. And so there are areas we need to break down still around, uh, around the issue of stigma, but the increased acceptance, the increased awareness is a good thing for our society uh, on the whole. As someone who diagnoses and treats others, how important is it for you to know when to step back and evaluate your own health needs? And is this uh, a topic freely discussed among mental health professionals? It's critically important to do that. It helps you maintain your own stability and balance. It grounds you. It helps you to be more objective uh, in your work, which is necessary. So it's very important. We try to teach uh, all doctors to be mindful of this and doing this uh, from the beginning of their training. So now in residency training, all branches of medicine, not just psychiatry, are addressing the mental health side and the stress that we are under. Because physicians, like a lot of workers, we're not the only ones, but we're certainly under a lot of pressure and now with a pandemic going on and it's sort of the, the open-ended pandemic endemic, uh, our, our stress level is not going down at all. Uh, it's going up. 
uh, and we face the, politici the politicization of, uh, of medicine and what we're doing, and that's not fun either. So yeah, it's very important. Is it freely discussed? Again, we're breaking down the stigma, but there is still uh, a real area of stigma, I'm going to say, among many of my older colleagues uh, who were from the boot camp side of the, uh, <laughs> of the learning curve and time in medicine where they just, you know, you know, had to had to do it kind of thing. Uh, now we've made it a part of residency training and we're much more open about it. In my world, uh, the psychiatrists, I think, are better than most about it because we're used to talking about emotions. The trick is to find a group of colleagues that you feel safe and comfortable with uh, who are going to maintain your privacy and confidentiality and respect that. Um, I can say in the last couple of years at the big national forensic psychiatric meetings run by the Academy of Psychiatry and Law, this has been a topic on the agenda. There's been open discussion uh, in our meetings about this. I think that's a really remarkable breakthrough. Uh, uh, last year, one of our past presidents gave a wonderful talk about his depression and uh, suicide attempts uh, and was very open about it and talked about how the baggage he was carrying with him was immense. Uh, in the forensic world, we're also seeing a little bit more of it, both for ourselves and also with the law enforcement uh, people that we work with, the judges and the jurors and the lawyers in cases, because in today's world, they are being exposed to the same overwhelming traumatic material that people like me see every day, and it's taking a toll. So if you sit through a, a mass shooting case on a juror or uh, a case of uh, where someone's charged with multiple uh, you know, sexual offenses against infants and minor children, and you have to review that material, you have to see photographs of it, you have to hear testimony about it, it can cause vicarious trauma, essentially PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, in all of us as professionals. And the recognition of that uh, really has, has been great. And so we're seeing in, in, in some of the bigger high-profile cases, judges, uh, mandating that the courts make available uh, mental health treatment to everybody involved in the case uh, because they recognize that it's traumatic and some of them are good enough to set the example and tell everyone they are going to or are getting treatment for that themselves and that there's no shame, no embarrassment about it. A uh, little bit like after the... Uh, after 9-11, the uh, New York City Police Commissioner did a remarkable job by going and getting treatment and making it public that he was getting treatment and setting the example uh, for all of his officers to get treatment as well, because there wasn't going to be any stigma about it. And that's how you beat it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the field and maybe some trends what sort of trends are you seeing in, in mental health and, and kind of the healthcare in general, speaking at it from, from a business level? 
Sure. So there's two trends I think that are are sort of the most prominent uh, at the moment, uh, and they would be the use of non-MD physician extenders. Uh, those could be physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, or other lower level providers, as they're called. And I think there's an absolute place for them, but I don't think that they replace uh, physicians. Their training, knowledge, and experience is different, and there's lots of things they can handle, but some they can't and shouldn't. And while legislatures and insurers find that the argument for increased access by increasing the scope of practice for non-MDs uh, is a good business decision, a good political decision, it's not necessarily a good care decision. So I think that's one trend that we really need to be mindful of. The other would be uh, the use of telemedicine. So telemedicine is something that, I mean, in psychiatry, we've worked with telemedicine probably 15, maybe even 20 years. It's been around a long time, but it you know hit its stride throughout medicine with uh, the pandemic, uh, the beginning of COVID. And the benefit obviously is there's uh, much greater access. It can be easier. It can be less expensive. You can get specialty care into rural areas where uh, the specialists might not otherwise be available. So there's a lot of good, but one of the realities is, again, that the standard of care, which is the foundation for malpractice, is not really the same in telemedicine as it is in face-to-face, in-person contact. Unfortunately, the law generally holds that the standard of care is the same regardless of how it's being delivered. And that's creating a new area in medical malpractice, and that is uh, over standard of care in telemedicine cases. And uh, that's an emerging area. I think it's going to be a growth area. Personally, I've already done three cases uh, in that particular area where the argument has been had the person been seen face-to-face, a different diagnosis, a different treatment uh, would have uh, played out than what was uh, diagnosed and delivered through Zoom, Facebook, uh, doxometry, whatever. So that's, I think, the two big areas that we're going to see. So uh, scope of practice, you know, through physician extenders and uh, telemedicine. The one I'd love to see happen, but I don't think is really likely, is I would love to see uh, a national medical license system. Uh, the fact is the standard of care is national. Uh, we all have access to the same sorts of technology today. And much like you can drive your car in every state, you don't need 50 licenses. And with telemedicine, most states and the federal government suspended the need for a specific state license and allowed us to practice with telemedicine across state borders. Some states are now rescinding that as the pandemic is winding down, but the need or the benefit of having a national medical licensure system where docs can practice with the one license everywhere to the same standard seems incredibly logical and reasonable to me, but 
uh, there is great pushback from state licensing boards for their own reasons. You mentioned Larry Cole as one of your mentors. Um, you've had a very seasoned career so far. Um, what sort of guidance did Larry and others give you along the way and, and maybe early on too? Sure. So, so really it, it's time, I think, for a shout out. I have been incredibly blessed and lucky. I have been in the right place at the right time just by serendipity and have had uh, some of the best mentors available. So uh, Larry Kolb, uh, Paul Applebaum, Jeff Geller, uh, Richard Rosner, Bob Sadoff, John Bradford, Bill Reed, Phil Resnick. These have been, you know, these are pillars uh, uh, of academia and excellence in my field. And uh, as I said, I've been in the right place at the right time and been able to work with all of them, develop friendships with all of them. And I still refer to them and call them. Actually, uh, Dr. Resnick and I just had a colloquy uh, over the last couple of days about a case I'm involved in that I wanted his thoughts about. Um, and it's a small group of forensic psychiatrists nationally. There's maybe 1,500 or so members of the Academy of Psychiatry and Law and really, when you get down to it, there's probably only a few hundred of us who are active in doing the kinds of work that I do uh, with the scope, depth, and breadth of it. And so the, the family that we have that allows us to consult with one another uh, is, is very special. Uh, and we take advantage of it. Everything from, again, you know, if you're feeling bad about a case and you need, you know, you want some help uh, uh, or you want advice about how to approach something uh, or you want to check, is your opinion really mainstream or are you uh, approaching an outlier opinion? Consulting with each other uh, is critical. Uh, as you said, I've been at this for a while now. Uh, Dr. Sadoff, who is now deceased, uh, he asked me to uh, write the Ask the Expert column with him for the Academy of Psychiatry and Law newsletter many years ago. So I was his junior partner, if you would, in that. Uh, he at some point uh, turned the reins over to me and made me uh, the senior expert, uh, and he retired. Uh, and uh, I brought in uh, Dr. Glancy from Canada, a, a remarkable uh, forensic psychiatrist to be my associate with that. And uh, he and I are discussing bringing in uh, Dr. Hall, uh, a slightly younger colleague from Florida, uh, to follow in our footsteps and uh, to create uh, the line of succession. Last question. If you could go back 40 years and give yourself advice, what would that be? <laughs> wow. Make sure that what you're doing uh, is fun. If you don't enjoy it, don't be doing it. That would certainly be one of my pieces of advice. Uh, don't be afraid to say no, to turn down a case, uh, or to say that you're not really the right person or the right expert for it. Uh, there's plenty of other business that will come your way. Uh, you will actually get respect from uh, people for knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Uh, and it's okay to do that. 
and a piece of advice I always share that was, you know, taught to me by all of my mentors is you don't win and lose cases. We're there to teach. Uh, you should be impartial in reaching your opinion. Once you have formed that opinion, it's a perfectly appropriate to advocate for that opinion, which is different than advocating for a particular side in a case. Lawyers keep wins and losses. Good experts have no idea whether or not a case is won or lost because we're just there to teach. The wins and the losses are for the lawyers. They're not for the experts. Thank you to Dr. Neil Kay for speaking with us today. And a special thanks to our listeners. At IMS, we're trusted to deliver consulting services to the most influential global law firms, early with pre-suit and investigation services, then in litigation during discovery, arbitration, and trial. It's been our privilege to serve our clients on more than 20,000 cases and over 2,000 trials. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us next time on the IMS Insights Podcast.